0: finish up here in Matthew, we pray that you would teach, we would listen, and just for this next period of time, that we just focus on you, Lord. Uh, We are thankful for the time to be here. We're thankful for the time to grow in you. Just pray in the name of Jesus that your hand just be upon all things, and we lift this up in your name amen. Uh, before we get started, I just want to mention a quick prayer request there. I came through the prayer line last night. Some of you have got it. Uh, Doris Spangler, that worshiped with us out here for years, her husband passed away last fall and she moved back up to Michigan. She fell. So they don't think surgery is going to be needed, but she's in considerable pain. And so her daughter called and asked for prayer for that. And I said, I will definitely mention that to the church. So if you guys that know Dora Spangler, a very saintly, godly woman, if you could keep her in prayer, we would have appreciate that. All right, Matthew, Matthew chapter 27, Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do hopefully the rest of the book of Matthew here this morning, which then I'll tell you what we're going to be doing here next week. It sets us up very nicely. For what we the to next week. Now, if you've been with us here recently going through Matthew, we've actually spent the last few weeks on these final moments of Christ's life. We spent a lot of time in the last week of Christ's life starting with what we call the triumphant entry and really here the last few weeks in mean, the final day of Jesus' life. Being arrested in the garden, then the trial at Annas' house, and then Caiaphas, the high priest, then to Pilate for a trial, then to Herod for a trial, back to Pilate. <coughs> last week was Jesus on the cross. And We talked about what that meant for him to go to the cross physically, but also to go the cross spiritually and how does this apply to us so we left off last week with Jesus' death on the cross which we will now pick up in verse 57 now when evening had come there came a rich man from Armimathea named Joseph who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus this man, was this man. Pilate, I for of Jesus. Jesus and Pilate God. commanded the body to be given to him. Now, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and wrote a large, large stone, stone, against stone against the door of the tomb and And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Now, we're introduced here to Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. And we know from this account here in the book of Matthew, verse 57, he was a rich man who was also a disciple of Jesus. And what does he do? He gives up his tomb for Christ to be buried in. Now, this is kind of an important point. Now, first off, Jesus, a convicted criminal, if you will, being on the cross, no one would want to go near that. No good Jew would want to go near that body, nothing. So for Joseph to take a stand to go get this body, that's something we're going to build on here in a little bit. But he also made the sacrifice of giving up his own personal tomb, if you will. This is something that would have cost a lot of money to have its own space, retail business. There's not a lot of these things around. Hewn out of a rock. And it's important that it's stressed that this is a new tomb in verse 60. There could be no confusion. If this had been a tomb with numerous bodies in there, there, and it can't find Jesus' body. You could make up any type of story you wanted. But which one was really Jesus? Or did it really happen like this? This is a brand new tomb that nobody had ever been in before. So therefore, when the tomb is found empty here in a few days, it had to be Christ. It had to be Jesus. And Joseph was willing to come make the sacrifice of this. And this had been quite the financial sacrifice. Is to stop and say, I'm going to give this tomb up for Jesus. And here he is. Once again, look at his description. Verse 57. A rich man and a disciple of Christ. Now, here's the beauty of four different gospel accounts. We're going to look at each gospel account. And you're going to learn one more piece of information about Joseph every time. And it all builds up to John, where you read the full story of Joseph. So what do we learn in Matthew? A rich man who was also a disciple of Jesus. Let's go to the next account. Can you go with me to Mark, please? Mark 15. Mark 15. In Mark's account, we learn a little bit more about Joseph. We're going to start in verse 42. It says in Mark 15, verse 42... Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is also the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself safe from God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So now we know he's rich from Matthew's account. We know he was a disciple. Now we know, in verse 43, he's an actual member of the council. Remember the Sanhedrin, the group of 71? Jews that helped convict Jesus. This man was part of that council, a disciple of Christ. But look at him in verse 43. He was waiting for the kingdom, and he had to take courage. This is a big deal to go ask for this body. Jesus, once again, is a convicted criminal, according to the Romans. His disciples are in hiding for fear of their lives. And here's Joseph taking courage and very boldly going up and saying, I will take the body down off the cross, and I will personally give up my tomb for this. That's quite the step. So we know he's rich, we know he's a disciple, and we know he's also a council member. Let's now go to Luke. Luke 23, please. Luke 23. See now in Luke, we get a little bit more detail about who this man Joseph is. Luke 23, verse 50. Now, behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council man, just trust me. Verse 51, he had not consented to their decision. Indeed, he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who himself also was waiting for the kingdom of God. This guy now had enough guts to vote against the council when it came to Jesus. So we learn the first account he's rich. We learned he was a disciple. Second, we learn he's a part of the uh, council. Third account now in the book of Luke. We learn he is a council member, a good and just man, and he also voted against it. But this is now where it all comes together. Go with me to John's account, please. John 19. Here in John 19, we get the final piece of the puzzle. John 19, verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, the disciple of Jesus, that seeks secretly. For fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. Stop right there. He was a secret disciple. Secret disciple. Now, uh, what does that mean? Well, we've already read that he had to take courage. we already read that for fear of the Jews, he believed in who Christ was. He was a follower of Christ. He was a disciple. But out of fear, he never went public with it. Now, what's my point? My point that you see a lot of times here in the church in America is you see a lot of Josephs. The Bible calls them a good man, a just man, a disciple. But out of fear, out of fear, they stay in the shadows. I'm telling you today is the day that if you are a Joseph, it's time for you to come out of the shadows and be open about your faith. Take a stand. Think about this. This man put everything on the line. He had a position of power and prestige. He was part of the council. Now, I don't know what would happen, but obviously he dissented. He dissented very strongly. He actually then took the public stance to take the body of Jesus. I could see it being very difficult for him to be on the council. He was willing to make a sacrifice financially when it came to the tomb. He put his reputation on the line. He did everything, everything, took courage. courage, And he went out and did it. And he was the secret disciple that came out of the shadows. And I'm telling you right now, it's time for us to do that as a church. There's, what, 168 hours in a week, Right? And we spend maybe an hour, maybe two hours together a week. Now, I'm assuming you're all great sleepers, so you all get eight hours a night. So you got 56 hours right there asleep. Okay? There's a lot, there's a lot of hours left where it's just you and the Lord. Now you came here this morning. You didn't have to do this. I don't think anybody forced you. You came on your own free will. You're giving up a Sunday morning to come sit and listen. That at least shows me you at least have a passing interest in who Jesus Christ is. So if you have at least a passing interest in Christ, now's the time to say, okay, if I'm really born again and saved, it is time for me to step out of the shadows and say, I'm going to be open about my faith and take a stand, and I'm going to take courage, and I'm going to move forward publicly about who I am, not just for an hour on a Sunday morning, but for every hour of the week, I'm going to stop and say, Lord, what can I do to represent you? How can I look at every opportunity I have, any social opportunity? Any social interaction, how can I stop and say, Lord, I hope this turns into a time to glorify you, to praise you, to point people towards you, because it's time for me to come out of the shadows. Now, at this point, I usually have somebody that will come up to me after church and say, James, I agree with what you said. I like what you said, but I'm the type of guy, I'm, not, I'm just not going to push myself on anybody. I'm not going to do that. I'm not asking to push yourself on anybody. I'm asking if you firmly believe from creation to revelation what the Bible says, then it's time to go out and say, Lord, I am stepping out of the shadows now, and I'm going to make every moment of my life be an opportunity for you and all that I do and say. It's not pushing it down anybody's throat. I've had people come up to me and say, James, I'm a Christian. I just don't want to make a big deal out of it. I want to make a big deal out of it. I think it's a pretty big deal. I think it's a very big deal, the eternity of heaven and hell. I'm going to read you a quote that I came across this week. This is the big deal said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Proselytize is just a big fancy word meaning you try to bring them into the faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's really not worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, an atheist who think people shouldn't proselytize, who just say, leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you, and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I just tackle you. And this is more important than that. I think that's a great quote. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Now, the interesting thing about this quote is you could say that quote was from a pastor or whatever that's not that quote is from a very prominent atheist an atheist and what he is saying is listen christians you believe eternal life is possible but yet because of what he says himself it's socially awkward you don't tell anybody how am i supposed to believe how important that eternal life is when you won't even take the step to try to tell somebody that's coming from the other side people This is an atheist that just doesn't not know if there's not a God or not. He comes right out and says, I know there is no God. And some of his other quotes. And he's saying, how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them about eternal life? There's time and a place, and the time and the place is now, for all the Josephs of Arimathea to come out of the shadows and be open about your faith. To take the stand. Take courage and realize I'm going to take a stand for Christ. If I really believe, if I really believe in the eternity of heaven and hell, then I don't want to push it. I don't want to force it. But I'm going to be open to every social, social interaction I have with people and to say, Lord, is there an opportunity here to plant the seeds, promote Christ, of Jesus? and talk Jesus? Let's look at one more example of this. Verse 39. And Nicodemus who had first come to Jesus by night also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury now in the place where history was a garden, garden more tomb, which no one had yet laid so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews preparation day for the tomb was nearby Nicodemus he takes a public stand now let's read up on Nicodemus now Nicodemus is only mentioned here in the book of John so this will be pretty easy jump back to John chapter 3 with me some of the most famous verses in the Bible, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, comes out of a conversation with Nicodemus. Now, you know how the story ends with Nicodemus. Let's go back to the beginning. John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees. Named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus is also a ruler, just like Joseph was. This man came to Jesus by night. Why did he come by night? He didn't want anybody to see him talk to Jesus. Jesus is causing problems. He's creating waves. So he comes to Jesus at night. And what does he say, Rabbi? We know that you're a teacher. Come from God, that no one can do these things and that you do unless God is with them. Jesus said, answered and said to him, "Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, don't butter me up, Nicodemus. Let's get right to the point. Let's talk about salvation. See, I like the story of Nicodemus. Some of you were a Nicodemus. The first time you heard the gospel presented to you, you didn't hit your knees and accept Christ as your Savior. It took time. Maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years. I don't know. But it took time. I got saved when I was a junior in high school, and I can remember Jim started witnessing to me when I was a freshman in high school to start planting seeds. So you may have been a Nicodemus where it didn't happen right away. Look at Nicodemus; he has that point. Then he comes back in verse four: "How can a man be born when he is old?" Then he comes back in verse nine, asks another question, and then it ends in verse twenty-one with what? No information on what happens what to Nicodemus. Nicodemus. You don't know what happens. To him. Does he get saved? Does he not get saved? We don't know. Stay in John. Jump ahead to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, Nicodemus is mentioned again. What's going on here in John chapter 7 is they want to arrest Jesus. But no one really wanted to do it. Verse 45, then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? Meaning Jesus. The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Do you also deceive?" Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Now this is important. This is Nicodemus taking just a tiny little stand. Do you remember when you first got saved? And you're excited. When you're around other believers, that's all you could talk about was just Jesus and the Bible and God's word. And you would have this excitement and this passion. And then you would go out into the world and realize, I am in the minority when it comes to most moral beliefs. I'm the minority when it comes to most ideas and theologies. And then all of a sudden, here you are now saved. And you're at work, you're at school, you're at home. And the shows you used to watch and the songs you used to listen to, the jokes you used to laugh out, the words that used to come out of your mouth. Now, when those words come out of your mouth, it's like uh, that that pricks my soul a little bit. Those jokes, those conversations I used to have with the other coworkers, all of a sudden I just I don't think I can laugh like I used to laugh. It makes me uncomfortable. That show that you used to love, now all of a sudden you start noticing other things in it. Has this always been in there? Your soul has been changed in Christ. All of a sudden, you look at the world through a different lens. And so what happens now at school, at work, what have you, all those different times that you just used to go along with the crowd, joke, laugh, say whatever, you now catch yourself being bothered. You now catch yourself being convicted. And now you catch yourself saying, guys, maybe we shouldn't. What are you? You're Nicodemus in John 7. The Lord is working on your heart, and you're realizing, "I I can't do this anymore. I can't be the same anymore. Listen, if you claim to be saved and your life is living the exact same life as it was before you got saved, what exactly did Jesus save you from then? So often we say we get saved and we continue down the exact same path. When we get saved, there's a change that happens from the inside out. And from that inside out, I start I to I realize, I realize I can't be the same person. It's not a legalism. It's not a have to. It's a want to. It's Jesus, I want to live differently for you. And so what happens here in John chapter 7, Nicodemus takes a little, a little stand. And all of a sudden, in John chapter 19, Nicodemus takes a huge stand. Now, how long did it take him to do that? Years. From John 3 to John 19, that's not just a week, it's not just a month, it's years. So what does that mean? A couple things. You may have somebody you're praying for right now that you're planting seeds in. Amen. They may be back in John 3. You're having godly conversations with them. You don't see the fruit you want. Realize and trust the Lord is working on their heart even when you don't see it. Number two, you may have seen somebody who is expressing truth, but their life isn't really all the way there yet. Be patient as the Lord molds them and makes them into his image. It takes some time. But you see, Nicodemus, that there is forward progress Eventually coming to John 19, where both Joseph and Nicodemus are willing to come out publicly, take a stand for Christ, and literally put their lives, their reputations, their finances, everything on the line for Jesus. Because they said it's time for us to quit being the secret disciples in fear and be open about our faith. I just want to remind you one more time. If we believe in the eternity of heaven and hell, that should change every social interaction we have with people. Because we care so deeply about their soul that we stop and say, Lord, I can't be the same. And just like Nicodemus and Joseph came out of the dark, out of the shadow, a secret disciple, no more. That's what we need to do too, body of Christ. And all that we do and all that we say. Jump back now, if you will, please, to Matthew chapter 27. So Jesus is now in the tomb. Verse 61, Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. That's going to become an important point later. Remember that. Verse 62, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say to the people, He has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Isn't it fascinating? The non-believers were more concerned about the resurrection of Jesus than the believers were. What are the believers doing at this time? Hiding, in fear, scared. Now listen, it's easy for me to say this. But if I knew Jesus was going to rise from the dead in three days... Man, I'd go get a lawn chair and just sit outside that tomb and just wait. This is going to be exciting. This is going to be amazing. No, the Bible says they, they were in hiding, hiding because, because fear, fear. Fear. fear, Which, which makes the Joseph, Josephine and the amazing, amazing. Because they were willing to take that stand. Now, the Jewish leadership of this time are concerned. If this body disappears, we're going to have a pretty big problem. So, Pilate, we need your help. Please note... The Jews are going to Rome for help. It shows how much they're willing to compromise because of how much they hated Jesus. Pilate says, I'll give you a guard. That can have been anywhere from 4 to 16 soldiers. 4 to 16 soldiers. So now they have taken the tomb. They put a huge stone in front of it. They have physically blocked the tomb. They now have anywhere from 4 to 16 Roman soldiers. They have militarily blocked the tomb. And then they go and put a seal on it, verse 66, which shows that do not touch, touch, the threat of Roman Romans. they have now politically sealed the tomb. They have done everything they can to keep Jesus in there, physically, physically blocked, militarily no, blocked, 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 politically blocked. They never expected angels to come down. Verse one, chapter twenty-eight. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began, the dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. I'd love to see that. I mean, the angel just shows up. Those Roman soldiers faint in fear. He moves the stone, and what does he do? He just sits, just waiting now for people to show up. Now, why was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary coming to the tomb? We talk about this every resurrection service, especially sunrise service. They were coming to the tomb. Why? Because they were expecting to find a dead body. They were not coming to the tomb to celebrate that the grave is empty. They were not coming to the tomb to sing, you know, he has risen. They're not. They're coming to the tomb out of sorrow and sadness. And why do they come early in the morning? Because they had to wait to daylight, to see. And the other gospel accounts say they're bringing spices under things with them. Why? To anoint the body. The Jews back then did not embalm bodies. So what you would do is you would take and you put spices and herbs, and then you would put strips of linen and do it again, and you'd do it again and do it again. They are so full of sorrow and sadness that they're coming to the tomb. We're not of There's a huge stone there. There's a Roman guard. They're so full of sorrow, they're not thinking clearly. They just show up, and as they show up, what do we have? The tomb open and an angel sitting there. That's amazing to me. What does they say? Verse 3, his countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. This is the the top-of-the-line Roman soldiers. They didn't know how to handle the angels. Please note, a lot of times in the Bible, when you see an angel appear, The reaction of the human being is fear. We're not expecting this. This is so amazing. This is so awe-inspiring. We're getting a glimpse into a heavenly realm that we do not see earthly. And the response is usually fear. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid. And you've heard me make this point. Why does he have to say, do not be afraid? Because they were afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed he is going before you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, "To not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and they will see me. What an amazing amazing of here. They show up to see a dead body. The tomb is open. The soldiers have fainted. The angel says he's risen. And as they were so excited to go tell people, they run into Jesus himself. That's what we get to celebrate here in just a couple months on Resurrection Sunday. This is why we celebrate this. Because since the tomb is empty, death has been defeated. It's amazing. Now, what is Jesus telling them to do? What is the angel telling them to do? Verse 7. Go tell his disciples. Verse 7. Verse 8. They run with joy to bring word to the disciples. Then in verse 10, Jesus says again, go tell them. Please remember those points. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. The idea of telling and what does that look like. But here we have a couple points that we need to say. Look at their reaction. We have fear, verse 8, great joy. Jumping ahead just a little bit. Can you look at verse 17 of the same chapter? When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Other gospel accounts, it says they were perplexed. They were marveling. Put yourself in this position. You're expecting to go to the tomb to see the dead body, and the body is gone. I mean, and I'm not making a joke out of this, so please don't think I'm being disrespectful. Imagine you had a loved one that's passed, and you go to the funeral, and you show up at the funeral, and the funeral home director comes and says, I'm really sorry. There's no body anymore. What happened? He got up and left. What would you you think? This is why all these words are here. The one gospel account says they were perplexed. That's an interesting Greek word. That means they have no idea what people think. They are so, so perplexed and confused. They can't even begin to think about what happened. Another one says that Peter marveled. He was in such wonder. And what we have right here in Matthew 28, it says that they doubted. Now, don't think that word doubted means what it means. It's an interesting word. It literally means uncertainty. It's the same word used when Peter was walking on the water and he fell into the water. It's not that you doubt who Jesus is. Peter could still see Jesus. It's not that you doubt eternity and salvation. It means that the world at that moment has gotten so much of you that you just stop now and you think, Lord, I don't even know anymore. Has that ever happened to you? You know who Jesus is. You know he died on the cross for your sins. You believe in the eternity of heaven and hell, but... I'm just so overwhelmed with what's going on. Lord, I just have so much uncertainty. You're not doubting your salvation. You're not doubting your faith. It's just, Lord, I don't know. This is all the different reactions that they have. The most famous reaction is Thomas. If you remember Thomas, I won't believe unless I can stick my fingers in the holes where the nails were. But you can't imagine what these people were going through. And so what is Jesus' reaction to them? Verse 9, rejoice first, don't, you, don't Now come on. Don't you think he should be a little bothered? You guys all ran and hid from me. None of you believed. Ladies, you're coming back to anoint a dead body. First Peter, James, John. Didn't you know I told you guys? No, there's no rebuking. There's no admonishment. There's just joy. Because that's what Jesus wants. He just wants to have a relationship with you. And he says, "I've already taken care of the sins on the cross. Will you accept that sacrifice from your sins? And now I just want to rejoice with you." Verse eleven. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. And they had shelter and and together. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, "Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept." And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now there's a lot of flaws in logic here, folks. These are the top of the crop here. Roman soldiers, you don't fall asleep on the job. And in fact, let's say you did fall asleep on the job. How are you supposed to know the disciples came and stole the body away? You were asleep. It reminds me, of Tyrus right now, our youngest, who is four. His big thing now is when he goes Ray. After we get done, everybody's eyes were open when we got done praying and I tried to tell him how do you know his eyes were open your eyes had to be open to know his eyes were open well that logic doesn't work remember you can't use logic with a four-year-old so now my eyes are open to look at his eyes being open to see whose eyes he's looking at so you can't come and say they stole the body away well we were asleep well how do you know we were asleep I don't know it makes no sense It makes no sense in any way whatsoever. Plus, a good Roman soldier, you're responsible. You're on duty here. There's a chance that their own life could have been at stake because their guard, their job was to keep this body secure. And Roman law said this, soldier, if you're guarding the person, it's possible that they escape. You could take their punishment on your behalf because you did not do your job. So there's a lot going on there that just doesn't make sense. But this is what says, sucks. When they can't understand Christianity, they just start making up their own story. And sometimes you want to stop and say, listen, I know what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that I believe in a God that has existed forever. And I believe in a virgin birth. And I believe in that Jesus was God and man. And he lived 33 years. And I believe he died on the cross. And I believe he rose again for our sins. I believe all that. And I know that may sound strange to you. But you almost want to repeat what they believe. You're telling me you're basing your whole life and your whole eternal future off of your story here? There are so many holes in that. Right here. This is what we're going to do, guys. Um, We're going to pay you off, tell them they stole the body away while you slept, and um, we'll go from there. That's the best they could come up with. The world 2,000 years later are still scratching their head trying to come up with a reasonable solution. There is none. The tomb is empty. Jesus rose. And that's what we need to deal with. And that's the information that we have. So now the question comes up. If we believe from creation to revelation, what this is saying, what are you going to do with that information? That quote I read to you earlier, if we really do believe in everlasting life, how much do I have to hate somebody to not tell somebody about that? What are we supposed to do with this? Verse 16. And the eleven disciples, only only the disciples, and the only one who Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is what is commonly known as the Great Commission. Jesus Jesus, says, Listen, this is what I want you to do. Verse 19. Go make disciples baptize people. Verse 20, teach people. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, are we going to do that? Now, as we get ready to those questions, questions. those things that he just said, verse 19, making disciples, baptizing, verse 20, teaching them. Three questions to ask you. What does that look like for you as an individual? This is what the Lord has asked you to do. These are his marching orders. These are his final commands to you as a church. This is what we're supposed to do. What does that look like for you? For you to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach? What does that look like for you? Okay, next question. What does that look like for your family? What does that look like for your family? And the last question we have to ask ourselves, what does this look like for us as a church? What we're going to do starting next week is we're not going to do a a verse-by-verse teaching through Acts per se. We're going to take these things right here, making disciples, baptizing and teaching, and we're going to go into the book of Acts, and we're going to look at practical application, how the early church did it. And then we're going to stop and say, how do we then as an individual do these same things? And I'm giving you a week forewarning to pray about this. So when we come back next week and we say, okay, Jesus said make disciples. What's that look like for you? Do you think you're, and I don't mean this aggressively, please don't take it that way. Are you exempt from making disciples? Well, he, he, meant, he meant Pastor James go make disciples, not me. No, he means all of us. What does it mean to go out and baptize? What does it mean in verse 20 to teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded you? As I mentioned to you earlier, how many hours there are in a week. We're already going to sleep a good chunk of it. We're here together for maybe an hour or two. And what the church is supposed to do at this time, according to the book of Ephesians, we're supposed to equip the saints for the ministry of the work. We're supposed to take the time we have together, give you an opportunity of fellowship, give you an opportunity of worship, give you an opportunity of ministry, encourage you, but then also teach you. Because we're only with you for an hour or two. All those other hours of the week, we want to encourage you to go make disciples, baptize, teach. Teach. Every social interaction you have, I want you to be in prayer saying, Lord, is this an opportunity to represent you? Don't force it. Don't go up to the restaurant today after church and start up a conversation with somebody, and then a few seconds in it, say, Hey, can I baptize you right now? It's not going to go over real well. But as you start building relationships with people, you start talking to them, and somebody has a desire to go deeper, you say, You know what? Let's get together. Let's get together weekly. Let's encourage one another. Let's disciple. Let's disciple. You know, and speaking of baptizing, uh, in a little bit, we're going to have a baptism service here coming up here at church. If anybody feels led to get baptized, I keep forgetting to announce that. Please let us know. We're hoping to do one here this spring out here at church again. What's it mean to go out there and teach? That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to take this book of Acts, and we're going to look at the practical things that the church did, and say, how "How does this now now, help us? Because if this is what Christ has asked us to do, it's time for us, just like Joseph, just like Nicodemus, to come out of the shadows and say, I'm going to take a stand for the Lord and I'm going to actually do what this passage says and I'm actually going to live it just like they did in the book of Acts. And I'm excited to see what the Lord's going to do as individuals in your family and also as a church. Can you imagine if we as individuals actually stopped and said, Lord, I want to do what you said. I really want to live it. Can you imagine if your family would get together and say, we really are going to do this. We're really going to do what this says. And can you imagine if as a church we got together and said, wow, we're going to go out there and make disciples, baptize, baptize and teach, and teach, people. teach people. Can you imagine, imagine Spirit spirits? That's the goal, folks. And so as we finish this, we see the words of Christ, and I go back to that quote I shared earlier. How much do we have to hate somebody to not, to not tell them about eternal life? Let's pray that every interaction we have that we're listening to what the Lord may be doing, what the Lord wants to say. Worship teams, who come forward here, hey, let's pray this inter.